Discussion keeps the world turning. This is Roundtable. You're listening to Roundtable with myself, He Young. I'm joined by Ding Hung in the studio and Josh Cotterell on the line. Coming up, the concept of co-housing is not just a domestic trend. Across the globe in cities where housing is prohibitively expensive, this model of co-home living, which offers emotional support alongside financial benefits, is increasingly appealing. It goes beyond traditional homemade setups, fostering a deeper sense of community. Could this be a global answer to the challenges of expensive and sometimes lonely urban living? And if you like to keep your friends close and your enemies closer, this one is for you. Frenemies are those friends who you sometimes can't stand, don't always trust, and who form a platonic love-hate relationship with you. How to deal with frenemies. Our podcast listeners can find us at Roundtable China on Apple Podcast. Now on Roundtable as we continue today's discussion. Imagine an apartment that's more than just a shared space. It's a hub of companionship and emotional comfort. This is what's happening in big city apartments such as Shanghai's Dingxin Building. Young people are turning their living spaces into real-life episodes of friends, creating a sense of community in the midst of the mega city. So, is the picture all that rosy without shadows? <laughs> Paint the picture of today's co-housing living for us, Ding Hong. Well, this description regarding real-life episodes of Friends is really to the point and not very, pushing it too far. Yeah, so we're talking about a scenario in which you know co-housing living is tucked in a kind of apartment building with a say twenty、uh, square meter living room where there is a desk, a TV set, a bar. And a number of sofas, for example. And after work, its residents would like to sit on sofas, watch TV together, and chat sometimes until 1 a.m. at night before going back to their respective rooms. I mean, and on weekends, I guess, and even on weekdays, they can meet up for dinners, exhibitions outside, or even planning trips. Abroad, well, that's very idealistic. <laughs>、mm. I have never encountered such a scenario myself, but yeah, I'm not sure whether you know today's、um, Gen Z generation are willing to experience this kind of、uh, lifestyle. But、mm-hmm. really, I think the characteristics of this kind of new lifestyle is that people are both housemates and friends. They keeping each other's company, supporting each other. And public spaces becomes a shared spaces, holding group building activities from time to time, and there were even resume and interviews that are required when you want to select some qualified housemates or roommates. Well, that's beyond my personal imagination. Well, also it depends on who is deciding on the potential. Tenants, right? Yeah. If it's the roommates that are interviewing to see, huh, who should join us to rent together? Then,、mm. yeah, that's a little bit different. But yeah, the way I see this is, this might be a reaction to what is pretty standard 
of, you know, just there are a lot of online platforms as well these days, and then people move into one new city, and then they sort of uh, want to share the expense, and therefore they're renting one room with a whole bunch of other people, and usually it's just complete strangers, and then you decide on the location, the rent, and uh, see if it works, and then you rent or not. But this is a reaction to that, that apparently now young people are saying, well, there is this emotional and spiritual needs that uh, I seek to get some kind of fulfillment with the people that live with you. And apparently in more of the so-called traditional renting manner, people don't really even hang out in the communal living room because you're all strangers and then you just come back go to your individual room and apparently sometimes there are you know these electronic locks that you need to enter in the key code for individual rooms and then you know it's all just very closed off or whatnot but uh josh okay so after all that explanation do you see this as particular like a new thing or what are these young people looking for in this so-called new type of co-living? Yeah, well, I I don't think it's brand new, right? I think that this kind of co-living has existed for a long time, but I think it's becoming more um, prominent and more popular. And I think that it comes one major thing here that I, I feel is that there's a desire for that community. So the thing that you just mentioned about how a lot of these houses don't have that and you know i know in a massive city like beijing i've had this experience myself where i've lived in quite a big apartment when i first moved here and i didn't have much money i had to live in a quite a big apartment sharing with about five different people i don't even know know the names i never learned the names of most of them you know and really that community was it was like the opposite of it not having that in your house and it, it was really quite uncomfortable i think um, at least for me anyway, because I'd never experienced that before. And I think that we all want that though. I do think that we want that community or at least we want that freedom to live on our own. And I guess if you can't afford to, then it's a pretty good way to make your apartment much more desirable and and enjoyable to be there, right? So mm. I also think that younger generations, we've discussed on this show about employment um, and Gen Z especially and some of the differences and this idea about how maybe younger generations really um, consider their values to be important in life, right? And to have shared values at their workplace. I think also at home even as well. I think that these co-housing communities um, probably form around shared values, right? Maybe they have a similar job. And so, you know, they have similar timetables. They can work together at the same time. They can rest at the same time. Um, maybe even deeper things, I guess, like spirituality and stuff like that. Um, maybe. Mm. And I read some of the really positive personal anecdotes online about this. What people were saying was, oh, we come home and then we, everybody's arriving at different times, but they're watching the same movie in the living room and everybody sort of just, you know, gets a cup of coffee or whatever and joins in. And then everybody's just, you know, having a good laugh or whatnot. And uh, even, I'm not sure if this is something that the neighbors would appreciate, um, skateboard <laughs> in, indoors. And then somebody apparently suffered from a bad fall. And then this whole group took this person to the hospital and 
stayed with him and everybody's like in a really buddy-buddy, friendly relationship. And that just sounds like what you have in Friends, the TV show, or at least with Friends who have his back. And the problem in big cities usually is if you are a blow-in and then you don't know where to find these people. It takes time to cultivate these kind of relationships. And I guess what might be useful, a point here is how to find these kind of um, mechanisms or establishments or whatnot to make people get together easier. And this communal living with some kind of interview and screening process, then it sort of gets these people together. And I think that might be the most appealing thing here. Mm. Yeah, that's a effective way or efficient way of <laughs> cultivating this kind of, um, you know, interpersonal relationship. But one thing towards which I have some kind of um, complicated feeling mm. is that this very fact that in several co-housing cases or spaces, there is a kind of unwritten rule or unwritten consensus that anyone who somehow develops a romantic relationship mm -hmm. have to move out of the space <laughs> because they agree that a romantic relationship will put other roommates or housemates in a kind of dilemma which can easily affect or destroy the harmony within the house. Well, <laughs> yeah. that's... That's Josh, how do you feel about this? Ding Hong can't really make up his mind, but he's shaking his head here. <laughs> well, I mean, if you're living together with other people, I can sort of understand it uh, to some degree. Uh, because again, I think that I think it's a really fine balance. It's a delicate balance, mm -hmm. right, to have a comfortable living space. I've I've traveled a lot and I've lived in a lot of different places and I've lived with close friends and I've lived with complete strangers. And I have found myself that the best living experiences I've ever had have actually been with people that just align with me with my habits better not necessarily being my best friend but people who have the same desire for for example cleanliness as me or you know um having mutual respect for maybe when we can be loud and when we can't be mm. loud and things like this just like or you know when to cook or how soon after you cook do you wash up the dishes or all of this kind of stuff um and then, you know, bringing another person in, if there's two people in a relationship, I think that can be pretty tricky sometimes as well. You know, uh, I, I imagine that the, the apartment's going to be louder um, for, for many different reasons, which might be tricky. <laughs> right? Mm. I mean, yeah. yeah, I see what you mean. And mm. I mean, it can be as simple as something as don't steal my food. <laughs> uh, don't go but even worrying my about stuff. that is tricky yeah I, I guess it also depends how how comfortable you are with conflict because mm. conflict can be minor right it can be just confronting somebody in a in a polite way but also it can be quite awkward i personally hate conflict i can't deal with it at all i find it very very awkward mm. so i don't like talking about money or anything with people so I have to have someone that's just like me, you know, in that respect, which is hard. Which is hard. Yeah. Or maybe you'll be pleasantly surprised. Maybe not. You've had enough experience. Do you want to move in with me? Uh, <laughs> I like comfort. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So it seems like, you know, just walking the fine boundary 
And everybody's boundaries could be different. So that's always the tricky thing when it comes to moving in or not, or deciding to share this living space with uh, your friends or even a loved one or not. And it's really interesting, maybe we're seeing a little bit of a difference between at least what's being reported here in China and elsewhere. Because, okay, we've established that co-living is nothing new in this world. But here in China, the reports I've seen in China are mostly about this is a great way to combat loneliness. Whereas the international reports I've seen about this housing trend is that well, you know, it's so extremely expensive in many cities, the biggest cities in the world, and therefore co-living makes so much sense. And it's the best alternative from moving back home with mom and dad for young adults. But after COVID, as we've seen the rents in a lot of big cities internationally haven't all gone up. Some might have even gone down a little bit. Um, there are some big housing situation changes in different places. But it seems like, you know, one is more of a spiritual need kind of a discussion and the other is more of a financial reality discussion. So, Josh, I'm curious, what do you see as, um, you know, sort of the hallmarks of what's driving people into this kind of living arrangement? And maybe the reports from both sides could be a little bit narrow minded. And uh, what do you think about this? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, we've already discussed about some things like the desire for community, but at least in my own country, I know that one of the main driving forces behind this is is finance. I mean, mm -hmm. it's urbanization, really, um, and housing affordability. As uh, in many urban areas, I know that housing affordability is a real concern for young people um, in the UK. And I know that probably it is in China as well. And so I think a lot of these co-housing things, you know, we can look at it from this this angle is like, oh, this is just a new housing trend. But also we have to understand that there's probably other factors at play here. And that's probably that a lot of people just can't afford otherwise, you know. And so mm -hmm. that whereas before maybe people would be living together for a short period of time, maybe during university, for example, or maybe just after university. Um, I think now we're looking at a lot of these things as long term. I, people are living together for longer amounts of time um, into their 30s and 40s even living together with people. And that just wasn't really a thing, say, 30, 40 years ago. So, and and this is, I, I think, probably because of urbanization. Um, I, I wonder if, if you guys consider this to be a significant factor in China as well. Yeah, I think one thing you noted earlier, He Yang, is that the efforts or fight against the loneliness, that's really key. This not only has a social connotation, but also adds... Uh, a health care maintenance perspective because according to a report issued by the World Health Organization sometime last year, loneliness has really become a very urgent global health threat because its impact on human health is said to be as equivalent as much as 15 cigarettes a day. So I guess for people who suffer from loneliness, co-housing, might be a fantastic solution. It's like social supporting system to really, in a kind of um, effective manner, improve your social connection and participation. You can talk, share, cry, have fun together mm. with your housemates. So 
Yeah. That's a really good point. And this reminds me of another personal anecdote I read right before coming on the show. One young lady who um, is engaged in this kind of uh, communal living said that what she hated the most when she was renting regularly, you know, as a single person in a big city like Shanghai, was that she felt really empty every night coming home to an apartment of darkness, as well as she really missed having small talk with people at home, just the regular kind of um, good morning, good night, how's your day, you know, just small talk like that. And she was really glad to find a relationship that is not too close, not too intimate that you can find with your closest of friends, but also just people who you feel kind of safe to just be around. And so it's an interesting kind of relationship that, oh, it's like the weak tie relationship. It's not too close. And certainly it is closer than strangers. And having that was what she said is um, what she really enjoyed and thought was missing from, you know, the regular, oh, just, you know, rent a a space and uh, live your life and go to work and every day, stuff like that. So Mm. I guess there are some of these intricacies in our sentiment when it comes to being a stranger into a new city and finding life there. As we're seeing in China, the latest numbers are something close to 300 million migrant workers we have in this country. And that's a lot of people who are moving away from their ancestral homes, their home provinces sometimes, and find work, life, opportunities and future elsewhere and along the way there are some of these intricate emotional needs that sometimes might be difficult to describe but you're feeling the weight of it and it'd be great to find ways to have it answered in some shape or form and maybe this kind of communal living is only part of the solution or this is like a temporary remedy that some people have found and who knows in a few years time Maybe this is no longer suitable, or maybe the housing situation will have changed then, and um, some other new ways of accommodating people's needs will show up too. Coming up next, what's a frenemy? Should you keep them in your social circle or show them the exit door? Stay tuned. Looking for passion? How about fiery debate? Want to hear about current events in China from different perspectives? Then tune in to Roundtable, where East meets West, and understanding is the goal. It's the hour of Roundtable with myself, He Young. I'm joined by Ding Hong in the studio and Josh Cotterell on the line. Frenemy is an oxymoron and a portmanteau of friend and enemy that refers to a person with whom one is friendly despite a fundamental dislike or rivalry. Unlike authentic friendships, Relationships with frenemies can be toxic and unhealthy, and sometimes it's not that bad either. This is actually kind of muddy ground we are entering, so (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, it's not as straightforward as I thought it would be after 
consulting with Josh and Ding Hung right before the show. So how is frenemy different from a genuine friendship? Well, according to some, you know, academian definition laid out by scholars on with a focus on researching on interpersonal relations, I think we are talking about relationships that are often negative. That's the foundational tone, but it is also steeped in some situational ties and shared social connections that outwardly appear friendly. But are really riddled with underlying issues, competition, jealousy, or distrust. So I think some of the main features of frenemy is number one, competitiveness, because you really tend to view the other one as more like a competitor or rival rather than a friend that you need to support, right? And number two is probably jealousy. And number three is distrust.、Mm. You know, my main job responsibility is to doing some commentary on international politics, and you know, international politics and relations can sometimes help me interpret interpersonal relations as well, because you have really seen cases in which some neighboring countries in a particular region they don't really get along. They have a lot of conflicts, frictions. You know, problems outweigh their common interests, but this is not suggesting that between them there is zero common ground or shared interests, and they still need to do diplomacy. They still need to deal with each other. So, in that kind of scenario, we can also call the relations between these countries as friend enemy. <laughs> but you know, probably when we talk about. Interpersonal relationships,、um, we can be bolder. If you really don't like this person, just stop talking to him. Yeah, <laughs> right. In real life, you know, if we're talking about frenemies, interpersonal relationships, then you can't afford to cut this person off. But in the global community, we all countries have to interact with each other, and、um, and therefore it's a different picture that way.、Um, Josh, so frenemies, huh? Have them in your life,、mm. or do you see them? In life, yeah, absolutely, and I think that really, it's all well and good saying, "Oh, I, if I don't like somebody or they're doing me wrong, I just cut them off." But that's just not reality for a lot of people because of different power dynamics. I think for if if you are in a position where you're able to do that, and I mean, arguably we all are, but some of us have more to lose, right? When when you think about that power dynamic, because power imbalances, you know. Uh, especially in places like the workplace, and also just in communities as well,、um, one person may hold more influence over you, or they may hold it just maybe of your benefit to remain friends with them, even though you do not have. And I think this is the key aspect here to this frenemy thing for me, anyway, is that you don't really trust them.、Mm. I think that's 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 really central to it for me. It's it's kind of that relationship where you are on friendly terms. There's nothing particularly necessary. You know, sometimes it can be bad, but there's nothing particularly nasty at the center of it. But you don't really trust them to have your best interests at hand when,、um, you know, when things go down,、mm. right? When things really get serious. And、um, I, I think that as we get, we we also, I think often people also say, "Oh, as I get older," and I know I'm like this. I think there is some truth to that. That as you get older, you do. Uh, know yourself better, and you make better decisions when it comes to your social life. But I think also on a more practical level, as you get older, 
generally we become more financially free. Um, we have that ability. We're, we're higher up in that power structure. And so we can afford to cut, cut loose. Um, I think probably most of us, uh, if we were to say at what point in our life did we have the most frenemies, it would probably be back in high school or something, right? You know, mm. or something like this. Um, and I guess, yeah. but, but this is how I see it in my life anyway. And I guess that the definition of this is, is quite multifaceted and it's probably different for every person. Yeah, surprisingly, actually, because, yeah, this is more complicated than I expected, actually. But also, maybe because I treat the word friend with a lot of emotional attachment, I don't think yeah. frenemies deserve this title of frenemies. It should just be enemies, yeah. or it yeah. should just be, like, regular people. You're not my real friend. You're acquaintances. Acquaintance, maybe. Yeah. Or maybe you're just work people I know that happen to have my WeChat because I can't resist because that's just socially unpopular. But we're not really friend friends. Mm. But yeah, like maybe you have a hundred people on your networking sites or whatnot. And uh, obviously, maybe only a fraction of them are your true friends. But the frenemy thing? I mean, also keeping somebody that you don't trust, that don't have your best interests at heart, but keeping this person actually kind of close to you? I mean, yeah. What's the psychology behind having frenemies? Well, I think in a way, this particular phenomenon is really a consequence of ego protection because uh, frenemies are common. Because of our own human nature, we are at the same time both social animals and, you know, egocentric, self-serving machines. Our friends often are both allies and competitors. That's the reality under many circumstances in real life. And when we tend to look at ourselves, we don't do so objectively or by comparing ourselves to our previous selves. But we tend to look at ourselves in comparison with others. There is often this angle of competition. So that's why I really agree with this point you raised earlier, He Yang, that this is an um, enemy in nature. There is no friendliness between them. because, And I don't think we can describe this relationship as love and hate relationship because when you talk about love and hate when there is love it's genuine love when it's hate it's really ugly hate it's really a combination <laughs> but for anatomy it's only about hate what is binding you together what is sustaining this so-called friendly atmosphere between two individuals it's mm. very superficial it's very vulnerable mm. As we grow up, our lives inevitably become filled with more responsibilities. Balancing personal, professional, and social commitments can feel like walking a tight rope. In the midst of this balancing act, I've realized that our emotional capacity is finite. It's a valuable reservoir that should be conserved for those who truly matter, the people we love and who bring positivity, support, and authentic affection into our lives. Why spend this precious emotional energy on dealing with unpleasant characters in our personal social circles when we have the freedom to choose our personal relationships? 
is an opportunity to be selective, and it doesn't happen all the time. Why not focus on nurturing bonds that uplift us, grounded in mutual respect and genuine care? Life is tough enough as it is. Let's focus on gathering joy, not stress. And that brings us to the end of today's roundtable. Thank you so much, Josh and Ding Hong, for joining the discussion. I'm He Young. We'll see you next time.